Ephesians chapter 4, verses 17 through 19. This is God's word to us this morning. Now, this I say and testify in the Lord that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. They are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to their hardness of heart. They have become callous and have given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. Father, these words are words which in isolation are words of no hope. If we are left to ourselves, there is no hope of being liberated from this condition. And it is the power of Jesus. It is his life, his death, and his resurrection. It is that which is applied to us by the Holy Spirit, which enables us to say, this is not me. I do not walk this way anymore. I walk a different way. Father, help us to see this great divide between humanity. That however we may divide ourselves by race or nationality or language or culture, there really are only two kinds of people in the world, the saved and the lost. Impress these things upon our heart and make your book live for us this morning. In your name we pray. Amen. Everybody's quiet this morning. Is that bad? Everybody doing okay? You, you sure? You can talk to me. I, I've been told by black people that we are very quiet. So I just want to make sure you're okay. You okay? All right, good. All right, paying attention. There we go. That's good. So in the Old Testament book of Ecclesiastes, uh, written by King Solomon, King Solomon writes about his discoveries about the nature of life, and, and he uses a specific phrase over and over again, under the sun. And he means by that a life from a merely earthly perspective. And he uses a word over and over again in that book, which is in English very often translated as vanity. Vanity. He begins the, the book with a phrase. Vanity of vanity, says the preacher. All is vanity. And he says that at the beginning of the book. And then at the very end of the book, he says exactly the same thing, word for word. And that word vanity punctuates all of his points throughout the book of Ecclesiastes. That word vanity doesn't refer to people who are enamored with their own good looks or their own intellectual prowess. It refers to emptiness, meaninglessness. The Hebrew word is chabel, and that's the word Solomon uses. It, it, It has reference to originally to a breath or a vapor, or a light, insubstantial thing that doesn't last. It's the very opposite of the word glory, which means weightiness, that which is solid and substantial and enduring. 
Now, I've told you before, and I'll tell you again, the, the Jews, as they spread out over the, the ancient world, came to, to regard Hebrew as not their original language, their native tongue anymore. It was a second language for them. And most of them spoke Greek as the first language by the time of the Apostle Paul. So about 250 years before Jesus, they produced a, a version of the Old Testament, not in Hebrew, but in Greek. It was the Septuagint, is what it was called. And uh, that was the Bible that Paul read. And in the, the Greek language version of the Old Testament, in the Septuagint, uh, the Bible that Paul read, the word is mateotes, mateotes. And that's the word Paul uses in Ephesians chapter 4 to describe the psychological state of unconverted men and women. It refers to a certain frailty or a lack of robust vigor. It refers to a perverseness or a depravity of mind, to that which is devoid of truth and devoid of appropriateness. And you put it all together and the composite picture is of a mind that has fallen far, far away from its original and glorious purpose. The mind is not the same thing as the brain. And I've mentioned that to you too as well. And I just want to remind you that the brain is a slab of meat between your ears, which your mind, your immaterial, your spiritual, your eternal mind uses to interact with the physical world. Your mind will outlast your physical body's current weakened arrangement. You will still have your mind with you in heaven or in hell. Your mind is eternal, it is spiritual, it is immaterial, it uses your brain. I, the, the, my favorite analogy is that the brain is like a glove and the mind is like a hand that goes in the glove and brings the glove to life and makes it do things. And some gloves are better than others. And some brains are better than others. IQ, for instance, is probably an issue of brain, not mind. So is dementia and schizophrenia and bipolar disorder. I, I, uh, you often see as folks age and, and their brains change and they get, they get uh, off track from their normal behaviors or when somebody gets a brain tumor, their behavior changes. And it can be very distressing to the family because they're like, is this what this person has always been like and has been hiding? It's like, no, 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 no. Their brain is just not responding appropriately to their mind when it tries to work its way in the world. Autism spectrum disorder is a, probably a brain issue, not a mind issue. And when those folks have discarded their weak bodies, you will behold a brilliant mind that has been hampered for a lifetime by a brain that didn't function as well as it should. The people that Paul is describing here in Romans, or rather in Ephesians chapter 4, verses 17 through 19, don't have a brain problem. They don't have a low IQ. They aren't driven to bad decisions because they hear voices or because they're in the grip of a manic fervor or are suffering from Alzheimer's or something like that. The problem for these folks goes much, much deeper. The problem is in their mind. And according to the scriptures, they have done it to themselves. 
You see, God designed the mind, and it's part of our being made in his image and in his likeness. God has a mind, you see, and he created us with a little tiny mini mind that is patterned after his great infinite mind. And so there's a correspondence between our minds and his mind in much the same way as there's a correspondence between a key and a lock. They just go together. Or an electrical plug and an electrical outlet, they just go together. Or a Dodge automotive product and a repair shop, you know, they just go together. Oh, I didn't think I'd have any Dodge fans in here. I thought I'd be safe to insult Dodge. But anyway, our, our minds were designed to know God. They were designed to commune with God. They were uh, to be able to judge between good and evil and to choose the good. They were designed to be able to reason, to be able to explore and understand the creation and God too, as much as he can be understood by a finite mind. And so the mind is the, the fundamental location of all kinds of good things like consciousness, And so it helps to set the direction of your life. And this magnificent gift that God has given to us with all of its great power and possibility is a ruin. That's what the Scriptures say. It's a ruin. It has been subjected, says Paul, to vanity, to emptiness. The ESV translates it futility in the futility of their minds, is what the ESV says. That means it's frail, and it's prone to breaking and fracturing in all sorts of uniquely destructive ways. That means it's emptied itself of the truth, and it doesn't know the truth or recognize the truth, and it doesn't want to because it rejects the truth, and it runs from the truth. There's a a built-in perverseness in the mind now, in our default sinful condition. And it actually works over time to come up with things that ought never to occur to it. And it brings into being things which it never should have brought into being. There are things that exist now because of the perverse and vain and empty minds of men and women that ought not to exist. And they're horrible, and they're a blight, and they're a curse. But there they are. And even though the Bible follows the ancient practice of locating the feelings in the gut, there was also an understanding that the mind had something to do with the feelings. And so a depraved mind isn't just about bad thinking and wrong thinking. It's also about bad feeling and wrong feeling. And so everything's a mess. Because of this perverse cast of mind and feelings, everything that the vain mind tries to fix, everything that the vain mind tries to create, everything that the vain mind tries to respond to constructively, ends up going wrong eventually. And the more vain and empty minds are involved in the process, the more wrong it goes. So a group of vain minds can do more damage than just a single vain mind operating by itself. And if you want proof of that, just go watch Congress and the Senate in action. Now ask yourself, why do things go as they do in this world? Why is there, for instance, crime and violence? Vain and empty minds. Why is there corruption in our government? Vain and empty minds. 
Why is there famine when our world produces plenty of food? Vain minds. Why is there chaos and confusion around every aspect of sexuality in our modern times? Vain minds. Why are families disintegrating at a record rate with women now initiating the majority of divorces? Well, vain minds. Why are children neglected and abused? Vain minds. Why is there racism? Vain minds. Why are there illegal drugs which are abused and cause so much havoc and so much heartache? Vain minds. And why are there microplastics at the North and South Pole? And now we find even, if you've been paying attention to the news in the last few days, it's not even safe to drink the rainwater because there are what they call forever chemicals, these plastics contaminating it. Why is that all that happened? Because of vain minds. Everything that is wrong with our world today, with the exception of natural evils like earthquakes and hurricanes, is a direct result of what Paul describes here in this passage. And our ability to deal effectively with the natural evils like earthquakes and hurricanes is also radically impacted by the activity of vain minds. We saw that, for instance, uh, in the aftermath of Hurricane Katrina when they tried to respond to the disaster there, and, and everybody was a mess. The philosopher Soren Kierkegaard said, you cannot build something straight from such crooked lumber as humanity is. And this brings us to our first observation this morning, how awful it is to be lost. How awful. How awful it is to be alienated from God. How awful for society that individuals are alienated from God and in possession and controlled by vain minds. How awful it is for men and for women and for children. We are in the latest chapter of a spiritual crisis that is many, many thousands of years old. Our knowledge of the natural world at this point has far outstripped our ability to responsibly use that knowledge. And that's all because our minds are vain and futile. Lost doesn't just mean that you end up in hell when you die. It does mean that. Lost means that you also ruin everything that you touch while you live. Lost means you poison every relationship along your earthly pilgrimage, despite your professed good intentions. And that's why everybody is carrying a load of pain, because they live in close proximity with other vain minds, and they themselves have vain minds, and they don't see the pain they cause, but they see the pain everybody else causes. And that's all because of vain and futile minds. Being lost will get you into hell, but being lost will also introduce hell into everything else while you live in this body. You see, this is the, the solution. You see this rather in the solutions that we come up with. Education, for instance, is routinely prescribed as a cure-all for the evil that infects our social structures. But education cannot do the job. 
education cannot cause someone who is invested in evil continuing on as it is and continuing to flourish simply because it benefits that person. And then it won't edu- it's like you give them an education and they won't st- sit up and go, oh, I see, I'm going to quit doing that. No, no. They just become experts at denial. They become experts at evasion. They become experts at projecting guilt into other places. They say, well, that's just how things are. You got to do what you got to do. You got to make a, you got to break a few eggs to make an omelet. Business is business. They say all those kind of things. When they're getting ready to do stuff, they know is wrong. And they do that because of vain minds. Loved ones, our official way, and by official, I mean what the, the powers that be in our society have decreed is going to be the case. Our official way of understanding human beings has been through the lens of psychology since the mid-1950s. Now, psychology is not necessarily bad, but it can be used in a very bad way. And, and it is being used in that way here. This, this official narrative, which dominates government, it dominates education, it dominates our social programs, it dominates our universities at the highest level, sees human beings as essentially physical and biological, and therefore it denies the existence of the human spirit and the role of the spiritual in human affairs. It just denies that. It's not, it, it can't even see it. It can't even address it. Therefore, whether it realizes it or not, it denies the existence of the will and the free nature of the will. And that's why it always conceives of our problems in terms of social and environmental causes, and it refuses to factor in choice and character. But loved ones, choice is where evil dwells in people. And character is nothing more than the accumulation of choices until they form a reliable pattern. So the result of that is we can't say to a person, for instance, who habitually steals and is uh, is prone to violence, we can't say that that person has a bad character and suffers from a depraved and a futile mind. No. We have to go back to the causes, the environmental factors. We talk about family life, and we talk about a poor uh, environment, and we talk about the poor education, and all that made him, and he couldn't help himself. It's not his fault he's this way. It's society's fault for failing to provide him with an optimal environment. You know, it's interesting because they never say a thing about those who grow up in the same environment and turn out just fine. Somehow they're resistant to all these environmental influences in a way that the person who went bad isn't. But they never go, well, I wonder if it's the fault of the person who went bad. They never say that. They're always looking for some cause. It can't be his fault. It can't be her fault. uh, uh, Given their childhood, you say, they never had a chance. He's doomed to his lifestyle, and very little can be done for him at this point. And that's just wrong. With a proper intervention by God and with his people, his life can be redeemed. But, but if you said, hey, I know, let's, let's take this lost person to church and let's educate him in moral knowledge and then let's tell him he's guilty before a holy God and let's pray for him and let's ask God to intervene in his life. If you, if you, if you offered that up to your local social program administrator, they would laugh at you. 
And they would mumble things about church and state. And they would talk about you in staff meeting like you're crazy. But that's where the problem lies. And that's where the solution lies. You see, this person can't be helped. It won't happen until there's a proper diagnosis of the problem. And that the diagnosis is this, that he's lost. That he's alienated from God. He's without hope and without God in the world. And therefore, he goes on a destructive path. I say to you again, how awful it is to be lost. How awful it is to be lost. Well, what is the cause of this vain and futile mind that infests each and every worldling from birth onwards? Well, says Paul, it starts with a hardness of heart. The mind and the heart, you see, they function together. You can't separate them in your imagination in order to, I'm sorry, you can separate them in your imagination in order to think carefully about them, but you can't really separate them in the real world. The heart or the will or the spirit, they're all the different words for the same thing, relies on the mind. That is the thinking and the feeling in order to function. And so the, the way that this works in our everyday experience, whether we're conscious of it or not, is that the mind comes up with thoughts and images, and it shows them to the will, and it says to the will, what do you think? What do you, you want to do with this? What, what should we do about this? And the will tells the mind what it wants, and it directs the mind to carry out the plan, and the mind enlists the body and the social environment and everything else to, to help carry out the plan. But your heart is the center of yourself. It's the origin of yourself. It's the fountain from which you springs. And in the lost human being, says Paul, the heart is hardened. It's hardened against God. The heart fortifies itself against God and resists God and resists its, His ways. The most, the most famous instance of this in all the Scripture is Pharaoh during Moses' day. And the text of Scripture shows us a kind of back and forth where Pharaoh's heart is concerned. Sometimes it speaks of Pharaoh hardening his heart. And sometimes it speaks of God hardening Pharaoh's heart. And that's not the only place in Scripture that speaks of God hardening a heart. Now, how does this work? It's critical that we understand how this works. Because if God hardened Pharaoh's heart by doing something to it to make it harder, then you could charge God with evil. That would be wrong for God to do. But if God hardened Pharaoh's heart by removing or withdrawing some of his common grace, which was restraining Pharaoh from being as wicked and willful as he was capable of being, if God took something away from Pharaoh that Pharaoh had no right to, to begin with, and just let Pharaoh become, by degrees, more like what his true inner nature dictated, then God would be just. For God is under no obligation to keep a man or a woman from being as bad as they possibly can be. And by the way, what is true for an individual heart is true for a culture or a nation or a world full of individual hearts. Why do things seem like they're getting so much worse in these last few decades? Well, the Bible tells us that there is one, the Holy Spirit, 
who restrains evil in the world in exactly this manner. By his common grace, he intervenes in the lives of men and women and keeps them from being as bad as they could be. And if he withdraws that, as I believe he is, then we become worse. We become more ourselves. And anarchy and chaos is the result. And this brings us to an observation. There is a great overlap between this passage and Romans chapter 1, which was read for the call to worship. And Romans 1 explains in detail how the heart gets hardened. The lost man or the lost woman starts out with some real advantages. They have some true knowledge of God that is available to them. And this knowledge will not save them. But if they would seek God according to this knowledge, they would find Him savingly eventually because God is a God who is and rewards those who earnestly seek Him. That's what the Scripture says. Anyone who would seek God must believe that He is and that He rewards those who earnestly seek Him. And if lost men and women would simply make use of the light which God has given them in nature and they would seek that God they would find him eventually because he is one who rewards those who seek him. But instead, what do they do, says Paul? Well, they suppress the truth. They suppress the truth and unrighteousness. They suppress what they can know about God. They suppress the truth in unrighteousness. And when God sees that, he says, okay, if you are not going to make use of the gracious things I gave you, I am going to withdraw them. And so he withdraws some of his common restraining grace, and their hearts are hardened a little bit. Now remember, the heart is not your emotions. The heart is the will, the seat of everything. And so when that happens at the center of their being, they get a little bit worse. And their thinking and their feeling and their desire become a little bit more disordered and sinful. And, and this works itself out first, says Paul, in idolatry. They become worshipers of false gods. Now, you can be an idolater and not have a religion at all. Your God is whatever is most important in your life. For a lot of people, it's money, or it's their golf game, or it's their children, whatever. I don't care if you show up in church every Sunday. If, if something else besides God himself is the most important thing in your life, it's that which you say, I'm going to orient my life around this. And if God gets in the way, well, God just has to wait his turn. Then you've, that, that's an idol. That's an idol. That's what Martin Luther said. Your God is that which is most important to you in your life. And so they become idolaters. They become worshipers of false gods. They orient their life around created things instead of the creator. And so what does God do in response to that? He says, okay, I'm going to withdraw a little bit more of my light. I'm going to withdraw a little bit more of my grace. And a furnace of impure lusts and desires begins to smolder and then kindle and then roars to life in their hearts. And they find themselves sliding into foolishness and error and debauchery of all sorts, violence, hatred, greed, the exploitation of others. 
You see, the word used for hardened in verse 18 is sometimes translated callous, but that doesn't really refer to the kind of callous that you might get on your hands or on your feet. It's often used of new dense bone that your body grows when there's a fracture. Now, I don't know if you know this or not, but if you break your leg and it's knit back together and fractured, there is something called a callus that forms at that area where it's fractured. And that callus is harder than the original bone. It will never break there again because it's the hardest thing in your body. And so if you break your leg again, it won't break at that site. It'll break somewhere else. And that's what Paul's talking about here. That fracture repair site is much harder than the original bone. And this is what's happened to our hearts. They get harder. And that's how the, the hard heart gets. It, it's rock hard against God. And when he withdraws his restraining grace from you, it enables a cascade of evil in a life. Now, what are the consequences of this vanity of mind and this hardness of heart? Well, Paul lists five. Five consequences here in this text. First of all, they are wandering around in moral and intellectual darkness. They're wandering around in moral and intellectual darkness. They are unable to see the truth in any meaningful way. At some point, it goes from, I see it, but I'm going to deny it, to, I can't even see it anymore. When... Uh, and I've mentioned this before, but it's, it's something that's fascinated me. I love the little throwaway phrases in Scripture that you, that you skip over so easily, but when you suddenly notice them, you find there's a world of meaning in there. And when Jonah is up on the hill and he's waiting for God to judge Nineveh because he hates Nineveh and he hates the Ninevites, that's his sworn enemies. They're just nasty people, and they were nasty people. And he's waiting for God to judge them. But at the preaching of Jonah they repent, and God doesn't judge them. And Jonah's cheesed off. He's just mad. He's like, I knew you were going to have mercy on them. I wanted you to toast them, and you make me go in there and preach repentance to them, and they repent, and now you're not going to destroy them? I'm just mad at you, God. And God says, look at that great city. Those people down there don't know. They don't know their right hand from their left. They are in bondage, in ignorance, and in sin. They do not know which way is up. They are in a dark, dark place. And there is no light at all, Jonah, until you brought light. They don't know their right hand from their left. And that's how it is. They don't know they don't know. Look at the people around you. Look at the people on social media. They don't know how evil their hearts are. Secondly, they are alienated or estranged from the life of God that they could have flowing through them both in this world and in the world to come. That life which is the light of men, says John chapter 1, and is life indeed, life everlasting. They don't have that flowing through them. Do you remember what it was like, Christian, when you didn't know Jesus? 
when you were like this and you were lost? Thirdly, they have become calloused. That word refers to appropriate corrective pain and the ability to respond to it. There are some pains which God has ordained for our good. Things like shame when we do something wrong. They no longer feel pleasure in truth or in behaving honorably. They, they no longer feel appropriate shame at their behavior when their behavior is dishonorable or wrong. And when people point out that their behavior is wrong and that they should be ashamed, they take to social media and loudly proclaim that they are unshameable and they are proud of it. Nobody's going to tell me that I'm wrong. We look at that, we're tempted to get mad, but what we should do is weep because they're lost, they're calloused. Fourthly, they hand themselves over to sensuality. They try and wring every ounce of pleasure that they can out of their bodies because the body then becomes the focal point for their whole life. They don't have a spiritual pleasure. They don't have a spiritual orientation. They don't know the pleasures of God. They don't know what it is to walk with Him in the cool of the day in the garden. They don't know what it is to get up in the middle of the night and go, you know, you're still there, God. I can feel you. I know you're just watching over me like a sentry. And I can go back to sleep in peace. They don't know that. Their lives are a ruin. So they give themselves over to sensuality. That's the only place they can find any pleasure. And they try and wring every ounce of pleasure out of their bodies, usually by sex and by violence and by mind-altering substances like drugs and alcohol. Now the problem with turning yourself over to bodily pleasures and the pursuit of them in a, in a systematic and maximum way is that these pleasures are not able to ever be satiated and satisfied. As a matter of fact, the, the bodily appetite for pleasure is unsatisfiable, and it's also subject to something that psychologists call hedonic adjustment. In plain language, you get used to something pleasurable very quickly, and it takes more and more to produce less and less pleasure. And usually this sort of systematic approach also destroys the body. So you think about, let's just say that you like marmalade. You know, let's just say you haven't had marmalade in years and, and you go to some little restaurant and all they have is marmalade. So you smear it on your toast and eat marmalade. You're like, oh, I haven't had marmalade in so long. That's quite good. So you go, you go to Ruli's and you buy some nice marmalade and you eat it on your toast every day. How, how, long, how long is it going to be before you're like, I don't want marmalade anymore at all? Because what was so good a little bit it becomes less and less satisfying the more of it that you have. And it's that way for every bodily pleasure. And so if you live for bodily pleasure, whether it's the high of being drunk or the kick of sexuality or the kick of violence, it's going to take more and more to make you feel anything. And it will eventually destroy your body. And this leads to number five. As they become more and more dead to pleasure in their bodies, Paul says they get greedy. They get covetousness in pursuit of every possible wicked thing and unclean mode of life. It's like, well, I can't feel anymore. And so I need, I need something. And they go around looking for things at first to make them feel pleasure and then maybe even just pain. And they become more and more dead inside. 
And so they become more and more greedy to feel something. And that is a well-defined, well-understood road downward into complete dissipation, into complete disgustingness. Every revolting and disgusting practice in the end will be tried if they keep pursuing this path. And they try and find some boundary, some limit, some place of rest, some peace, some place of genuine love, and they can't find it. And there's despair. And there are men and women wandering around San Francisco and New York City and Washington, D.C. and Youngstown, Ohio in exactly that condition today. I say again how horrible it is to be lost. You see, life without Jesus Christ, and I don't mean mere verbal acknowledgement of Jesus, I mean a life of interactive, joyous dependence upon Him for everything, from what you will eat and what you will drink, to your next breath, to what will happen to your heart, or your brain, or your kidneys, or your lungs, or whatever else at the end of your days, to heaven or hell, to rely on Him for everything in an interactive and loving relationship. That's life with Jesus. Life without Jesus is always empty. It's always vain. It always takes from you. And it always leaves you in the end as an empty husk. And the devil laughs because you have given up everything and he has given you nothing lasting in return. It leaves you exhausted with nothing to lean on and nothing to be proud of and nothing whatsoever to look forward to. And such were some of you before Christ came in. Such are some of you perhaps now because Christ has not yet come in. How horrible it is to be lost. Turn to Jesus and be found. Lord, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart be acceptable in your sight. For you are my rock and my redeemer.